got your Bible, let me invite you to turn to the final chapter of the book of Daniel. After many long months in a study through this book of the Old Testament, we make it to the final chapter. And uh, not the final sermon, but the final chapter, okay? Uh, I've got at least one more sermon after today and uh, Daniel chapter 12. You know, 20 years ago, May 15th, 2001, uh, there was an incident that happened in the state of Ohio that involved a runaway freight train. Now, the identification number on the locomotive itself was 8888, which resulted in this particular incident becoming known as the Crazy Eights incident. Now, basically, what happened was this. Uh, due to operator error, uh, this, it was at a rail yard just outside of Toledo. This particular engine began rolling on its own with no engineer inside. And so before too long, it was barreling down the tracks at 51 miles per hour, along with the 47 cars that were connected to it, some of which were loaded down with hazardous materials. Now, as you could well imagine, panic ensued. Um, Derailers were put on the tracks in an unpopulated area to try to force the train off the tracks, but it was no use. Officials even tried shooting an emergency fuel cutoff switch, but that too was of no use. But so finally, they came up with this plan where two engineers took another engine and they drove it to a secondary track that was alongside the out-of-control train's pathway. And so after the runaway train rolled past, they pulled behind it carefully, sped up until they were finally behind that last car, and they uh, moved ever so closely to the runaway train until they felt the clack of their engine locking on to the last car. And so they immediately began to apply the brakes until they were finally able to slow down this runaway train, slow enough to where another engineer could sort of jump on the engine and apply the brakes on that engine, and so disaster was averted. And I read that and I thought, well, I guess they were all uh, glad that they didn't come off the rails on the crazy train, okay? But... But here's the thing, for a lot of people, the world seems like a ride on one big crazy train, especially these days. We've got war and genocide, there's division, fear of economic collapse and fallout, bigger and bigger government. You add to that the rise of cancel culture. We may be tempted to wonder where the engineer is on this train that seems to be running out of control. Well, Daniel comes along and he shows us that the chief engineer is right where he has always been. He's on the throne, seated in a place of power and in perfect control. And folks, let me tell you what he's doing. He's moving the train of human history down the track of time And you can rest assured that he's going to bring us into the station of his everlasting kingdom. And that's the overarching message of these 12 chapters of Daniel. But as we come to this last chapter, chapter 12, again, keep in mind that the last three chapters of the book 
are a prophetic vision of the future that's given to Daniel for the sake of God's people. And really, the prophecy that's revealed in this section provides a detailed glimpse of the future, going all the way up from the time of Daniel to the end of the age when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so the setting then for Daniel chapter 12 is the time of the end. And that's a phrase that's used several times, especially in these last two chapters of the book. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when this subject of the end of the world comes up. Maybe you prefer to not think about it. Uh, Maybe it seems so unrelated to the stack of stuff that stares you in the face every day. You're fully aware that the world as we know it will end one day, but you seem to be pretty confident that it's not going to be tomorrow. You're going to live your life. Now, that's probably where a lot of us are. And while it's true that we shouldn't be preoccupied with, you know, the end times and all things considered about the end times, In an unhealthy way, we do need to think about it in a biblical way and in a very realistic way. Because when you do, what that does is it helps you prioritize your life and you live your life as a believer in light of that which really matters. And you're able to see your life in the light of the return of Jesus Christ in the end of the age. And so if this weren't really important, Jesus would not have had so much to say on the subject of judgment and the end of the age. Again, Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. In those chapters, Jesus deals specifically with the end of the age, and he does so in a way that is really in answer to the question that is raised by his disciples. Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? What will it be like at the end of the age? And it's interesting in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus takes his disciples really back to the book of Daniel. And he helps them understand what the end of the age is going to involve. And he quotes from these chapters in Daniel that we've been studying. Now, Daniel chapter 12, I want you to find your place there with me, beginning in verse number one. And I just want to read through verse four. But keep in mind that the angel who began revealing information to Daniel back in chapter 10. Uh, He's speaking to Daniel, goes all the way through chapter 11, and he's still speaking to Daniel here as we come into this 12th chapter. And so notice that he says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who were wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever." But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. I want to stop reading there, but I want to speak from this subject this morning, the time of the end. 
Upon reading these verses, as well as the verses that follow and make up this final chapter, it's obvious to the reader that the theme that's being addressed, that's being covered, is the end of the age. In fact, that Hebrew word end, it's used at least 10 times in these final two chapters. And so Daniel is being shown what's going to happen at the end of time or at the time of the end. Now you think about time, time itself is headed somewhere. Time is not at a standstill. Time is relentlessly marching forward. Even as we're sitting here this morning in this room, seconds are ticking away, moments are going by, uh, and, and there's, 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 there, your life is literally passing you by. Time is constantly moving forward. It's not at a standstill. And if time is moving forward, then that means time is headed somewhere. Just as the rivers make their way relentlessly to the sea, even so also does the steady stream of time move us forward to an eternal destiny that's been determined by God himself. And that's been the subject that has been covered in these last three chapters here in Daniel. And so according to Daniel, uh, what is revealed to Daniel, there are really five key things that I want to show you from this 12th chapter, at least three of which I hope to cover today, and then we'll finish up our study of Daniel last week and look at the final two. But number one, notice with me that the time of the end is going to involve a time of tribulation. That's the first thing that's emphasized there in verse number one. You'll notice the phrase, at that time will arise Michael, the prince, uh, the, the chief angel, the archangel, the one who has charge over the people Israel. At that time. Now, what is being addressed here is the subject that's covered at the end of the 11th chapter. Keep in mind that all the way back in verse number 36 through verse 45 of chapter 11, Daniel has been taken all the way into the future, and he's been given a glimpse of the last days and the Antichrist and the government of Antichrist and the time of distress and tribulation that that's going to be, especially for the nation of Israel. And so again, that's the context then that establishes where we are here in this 12th chapter. Now, I would imagine that many of us have somewhat of a basic understanding of this final period of history known as the tribulation period. It's the final seven years of history that leads up to the return of Jesus Christ when he comes to um, really pour out judgment on the fallen kingdoms of man and that of Antichrist, and he establishes his own kingdom upon the earth. Why exactly is it a seven-year time period? Well, we saw that issue being addressed back in Daniel chapter 9 with the prophecy of the 70 weeks or the 70 sevens. Daniel was told that there were 77-year time periods determined for Israel, uh, leading all the way up to the time of the end. Daniel's 70th week is another way of referring to that final seven-year tribulation period. And so it's this particular time period that's being addressed here in, at the end of chapter 11 and now that we make our way into chapter 12. Again, three and a half years into that tribulation period, the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation, which signals the halfway point. That's something that was referenced back in chapter 7 of Daniel. 
Uh, Again, chapter 9 of Daniel, it's something that's emphasized here in chapter 11. But that's followed up by a time of great tribulation, especially for those who are of Israel. Now, about this time of tribulation, there's some key information given there in this first verse. Uh, To begin with, notice the defender of God's people who's described. At that time, the time of the end, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And so really, in what's going to be a time of unparalleled hardship, Daniel's prophecy is intended to be a comforting promise. Now, let's not miss that, especially as we come to this last chapter. Uh, We've covered some things that really would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck as far as the the last days are concerned. A time of tribulation, time of trouble, a time of wrath, a time of hardship, time of difficulty, and and, and there's a lot of chaos, it would seem, that's being described in these chapters as far as the last days are concerned. And if we're not careful, we can allow that kind of stuff to really trouble us But folks, prophecy is not given for the sake of troubling you as a a believer, but providing you with comfort in the midst of the chaos. And the comfort that we take away from Daniel is this comfort. God is sovereign above it all. And God is at work in the midst of, of it all. And so that's intended to be a comforting promise for God's people, especially Israel, who are going to be experiencing such difficulty in the last days. And so, again, Michael, who's described here, this is the archangel. He's only mentioned a handful of times in Scripture. But every time he's mentioned, it's always in reference to defending God's people in some way, defending Israel in particular. Now, you're really able to understand this first verse here when you see it in its context. and You go all the way back to chapter 10, where Daniel is sort of let in on Uh, this spiritual conflict that's raging in the heavenly places and how what's really happening on the ground in terms of political chaos and turmoil and trouble and all that, uh, largely it can be explained by those invisible unseen forces that are at war with one another, holy angels and unholy angels. The angel that comes to Daniel tells him that he had been resisted uh, by the prince of Persia. That's reference to the unholy, demonic power behind the throne or the kingdom of Persia. And so we see from Scripture how these, these thrones of fallen humanity, especially those that fight against the people of God and fight against the truth of God, uh, man in his lostness, man in his empire of dirt, Behind that empire are these demonic powers. And yet, here in chapter 12, we're told that standing behind the people of God is the archangel Michael himself. You go to Revelation chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but even more insight is, is, is sort of shed on this subject in that chapter where John sees in the middle of the tribulation, uh, he sees how there is a war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting against Satan and his angels, and Michael and his angels prevail over the devil and his angels, and as such, the enemy is cast out of heaven one final time, and he comes to earth in great wrath, and then there's a word of warning for the inhabitants of earth at that point, 
Woe to you who dwell on the earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. And so past that three and a half year point, past the midpoint of the tribulation period, it's going to be a time of great distress unlike any other in human history on planet earth. And behind the chaos and behind the conflict and behind the persecution that Antichrist and his government is going to unleash upon Israel will be this satanic activity. Revelation 13, John sees how it's the dragon, Satan, who gives the beast or Antichrist his power. And he's going to fight against God's people and it's going to be a time of unparalleled difficulty. Yet God's people are not going to be without a defender. And by the way, listen, let me tell you, isn't that good hope for you in times of crisis that no matter what kind of conflict is raging in your life, you are not without a defender? God himself is the defender of his people. You will never be, uh, it may seem like you're between a rock and a hard place at some point in your life, but let me tell you, you will never be in a hopeless situation. God be for us, who can be against us? So this is the defender of God's people. But then notice, notice something else. Notice the distress. The distress of God's people. Again, verse one goes on to say, then there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Again, Revelation 12, when Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his angels and Satan is cast out of heaven. He's coming to earth in great wrath and it's going to be literally hell on earth. And this is why the Old Testament prophets referred to that final period of history as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse number seven. After Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Mark 13, verse 19, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be. And so someone comes along and says, you know, it sounds rather dark. I thought the world is, is really just getting better. <laughs> is the world getting better? Is the world seemingly getting worse? Well, it depends on what position you're in. It depends on what worldview you have. You know, within Christian circles prior to the 20th century, there was this spirit of optimism in so much of post-millennial thought that was held by so many of the Puritans that saw that as the gospel was being spread around the world, uh, that the world was gradually becoming Christianized and the world would become increasingly better and better and then this would usher in the kingdom of Christ. Then the 20th century happened and blew that out of the water. 110 million people died in two world wars in the 20th century. Global population has skyrocketed in the 20th century. Plagues and pandemics like the Spanish flu of the early 20th century and now coronavirus of the early 21st century. People are asking questions now that they've probably not been asking for a long time. Is the world really getting better or is the world getting worse? 
Folks, let me tell you what's going on. God is moving history down the track of time and he's going to bring the station, bring humanity into the station of the rule of his son. That's what's going on in the world today. But Jesus told his disciples to prepare for tribulation and distress. Someone says, well, why is all of this even necessary to begin with? Why a final 70th week for Israel? Why a time of tribulation? Listen, the tribulation period will serve a manifold purpose as far as God's purposes are concerned, not the least of which is going to be the salvation of Israel as a people. God's going to use the pain and the the hardship and the difficulty. It's going to be a purging process for the sake of Israel. You remember the, the, the multifold, the, the multiple um, um, manifold purpose that was outlined in chapter nine. What's the purpose of the 70 weeks to begin with? Those 70 weeks are in order for God to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. And so listen, partially this was accomplished in the first coming of Christ through his death and resurrection. A fountain of salvation has been opened up for the Gentiles uh, in the wake of Israel rejecting her Messiah. And yet the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. That time in which we live currently. And Paul goes on and says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. For as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So so the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, it's going to serve this purpose of bringing salvation to Israel as Israel in faith and repentance turns from its sin and places its faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Messiah. And yet another purpose that will be served uh, for the unbelieving world, the tribulation is going to be a time of judgment. It's going to be a time of reckoning as God's wrath against the sinful rebellion of man is going to be poured out upon the earth. You read all about that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, where you've got this message of, of these, John sees these seals, seven seals that are broken, followed up by seven trumpet judgments, followed up by seven bold judgments, eventually culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ, who establishes his kingdom upon the earth at the end of that period of time. You read all of that, and listen, I'm telling you, You want to know what the world is headed to? The world is coming to Christ. That's what the world is coming to. The world is coming to Jesus. But then what about the deliverance of God's people? There's a defender who's mentioned in this first verse. There's a time of distress that's referred to, but what about deliverance? A time of tribulation will be a time unlike any in history, a time of distress for the people of God. But Daniel is told there in verse 1, at that time, your people shall be delivered. And then notice there's a, there's a clarifier here. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. I love that word delivered there. It's a word that means to be rescued. It, it sort of carries this idea of, of slipping away. 
what the enemy is going to intend to destroy the people of God in the last days, uh, God is, God's going to defend. He's going to preserve. He's going to protect. He's going to deliver his people. And in that way, this promise that was made to Moses and to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is going to be fulfilled. Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So there's a clear promise there that God is going to preserve a remnant. His people are going to be delivered. God will not forget the promises that he made to Abraham, the promises that he made to David, the promises that he made to his people. And everyone whose name is written in the book is going to be saved. Now let me tell you something. You know that God keeps a record? God keeps a book. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 21, in the New Jerusalem, the city of God, you know that the only ones who will be citizens of that city are those whose names are written in the book, the book of life. The very book that I believe is being referred to here in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. You know, we've got a membership role here at our church. We've got 3,000 some members, half of whom the CIA, they don't know where they are. Let me tell you, there's a, there's a book that's more important than the membership book here at Green Street. Our government, the, the, the country, we, as citizens of this country, you've got a social security number, your name's written in the book, but there's a book that's far more important than the registry of citizens as far as the United States of America is concerned. What matters more than anything else is whether or not your name is written in the book of life. Whether or not you are in Jesus Christ. And so in the final analysis of it all, that's the only distinction that really matters. You, you see, judgment's coming. You know that judgment, there's a, there's a judgment that awaits a world of unbelief. How can I be saved from that coming judgment? Let me ask you a question. Is your name written in the book of life? Because if your name is written in the book of life, if you are in Jesus Christ, let me tell you some good news. You've been saved from the wrath which is to come. You've been delivered from that wrath which is to come. So in this time of the end, it's going to be a time of tribulation. And then notice something else. Secondly, it's going to be a time of separation. Those whose name it has been written in the book. They're going to be delivered. And then verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's going to be a final separation at the time of the end. There's a clear distinction being made here in this second verse. Just as time is moving towards some destination, so also is humanity and every single human being who's ever lived. Your life is not inconsequential. Your life matters. History is headed somewhere. Time is headed in some direction, but let me tell you, you are too. Which direction are you headed in? That's the question that really matters. You know, we live in a world that wants to divide people up into categories. We want to divide people up according to socioeconomic lines. You've got the rich and you've got the poor. 
You've got the haves and you've got the have-nots. We, we live in a world that wants to divide people up along racial lines, along lines of color and ethnicity and all of that. We want to divide people up along political lines and put people into political camps and categories, whether they're Republican or whether they're Democrat or whether they're conservative or whether they're liberal. All these categories, the world wants to put people in a category. The world wants to put you in a category. You know something? There's only one line of distinction that's drawn in the Word of God, and it's whether or not your name is written in the book or whether it's not. It's whether or not you are in Christ or whether or not you were in Adam. It's whether or not you were saved or whether or not you were lost. It's whether or not you've been redeemed or whether or not you've, you've not. That's the only distinction that really matters. And so Daniel sees here how this line of distinction is clearly drawn. At the time of the end, many who sleep in the dust of the earth, that is, those who've died, those who've experienced physical death, they shall awake. And some will awake to everlasting life, while some will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. And so this is referring to the resurrection. Now let me tell you something, a lot of people think that the resurrection, that's a doctrine that only comes out in the New Testament, that it's not anywhere to be found in the Old Testament. And while the full revelation of it's not seen until you get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, the doctrine of the resurrection is here in the Old Testament in seed form. It couldn't have been more clear to Daniel. Other passages. What about Job 19, verse 25? Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And then Job says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. After death takes its toll on my mortal body, I know that in my redeemed flesh I will see God. Isaiah 26 and verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and sing for joy. Psalm 16, verse number 10, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor let your holy one see corruption. You make known unto me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David is prophetically writing of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And the apostle Paul comes along and in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, he says that Jesus Christ and his resurrection is simply the first fruits of a future resurrection that will follow of those who are in Jesus Christ. And that's what Daniel is being shown a little bit of here in this second verse. There's going to be a resurrection for the people of God. Now it seems to me a lot of y'all have forgot that truth. It seems that so many of us have bought into the fear and the peddling of fear and the ultimate trump card that the enemy of our soul has is that fear of death. But for the believer, for the child of God, there is no fear of death and dying because we serve a God whose son is raised from the dead. And this is the message of the Bible. 
And this is the hope of the Christian, that there is a resurrection morning. And if you've ever lost a loved one who's died in Christ, you have reason to rejoice because you know that at the end you're going to see them again on that resurrection morning. It was a Roman philosopher, I believe his name was Aristides, who wrote, I can't remember what time of persecution, Christian persecution it was that he wrote, I think it was the Domitian persecution under the Roman emperor Domitian, but he made a comment about the Christians, how Christians went to their deaths in the Roman arenas and how they triumphantly carried their dead off to be buried as if they were victorious. And Aristides, it puzzled him. He wondered how Christians could live their life with such hope in the face of such impending doom and disaster and persecution. But those of us who are in Jesus Christ know the answer to that, don't we? And the truth of the doctrine of resurrection, folks, means that, listen, people die, but they live on somewhere. Death is not the cessation of human existence, contrary to what this secular culture wants you to believe. The world around us wants to constantly tell you that this life is all there is, therefore get all you can while you can, live it up because once you're in the grave, that's it, that's all she wrote, party's over. But there is a hereafter. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Genesis chapter three, the curse of sin brought about death. Adam was clearly told that in the day that he disobeyed God and ate from the tree from which he was forbidden to eat, that he would die. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. And Adam died spiritually. And eventually Adam died physically. And now, listen, every person who has ever been born in Adam as a descendant of Adam has come into this world in spiritual death. And no matter how young and how strong and how viral you may be, let me tell you something, physical death will come for you at some point also if the Lord tarries is coming. And we've been surrounded by physical death and the, the stigma of all of that and the fear of all of that this last year of our lives. You turn on the news and you see the, the, the number of people who've died in our country from the virus over the last year, and all of that can be a scary thing, especially if you don't know Jesus, because it seems so final. And yet, Daniel is told here that there is indeed a hereafter. The word of God emphatically says that the dead are still alive. Everyone who dies is alive somewhere. Death does not terminate human existence. You will live on somewhere after you die. Question is, where will you live? Where will you be? Those who die in the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the believer who dies... It's to be ushered into the presence of God, awaiting that future resurrection at the coming of the Lord. But for the unbeliever who dies, the unbeliever is reserved in a place called hell, awaiting final sentencing. And in Revelation 
Chapter 19, chapter 20, let me tell you something. That final sentencing is called being thrown into the place of the lake of fire. And everyone whose name was not written in the book, that's their eternal destination. That's if you don't know Jesus. Listen, don't you think there ought to be a sense of urgency with the church today, with the message that we've been entrusted with to preach? Jesus said in the last days, it'd be a lot like the days of Noah. Y'all remember what it was like in the days of Noah? No, I wasn't there. (laughs) You read Genesis chapter 6, you read all of that in the days of Noah. What were people doing? Jesus even said in Matthew 24 that they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, they were living life and they were pursuing the desires of their heart and they were going on with life as if Life was just going to continue being this way. The writer of Hebrews says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah preached a message of judgment for 120 years. And I can hear the culture of Noah's day. Oh, that crazy preacher. Man, he's been preaching this message about a flood for years. Not a day of Noah's life went by where he didn't warn people of the coming judgment. And I can hear the hammer swinging and I can hear the nails being driven into the wood as the ark is being built. All the while, what's Noah's generation doing? They're scoffing. Updating their social media status. Planning their next vacation. Planning weddings. And somewhere, somebody felt the first raindrop on the back of their hand. But by that point, for Noah's generation, it was too late. Same thing is going to be true in the last days, according to what the Scripture says. And the time of the end is going to be a time of tribulation. And it's going to be a time of separation. It's going to be a time of investigation. People are going to be running to and fro, Daniel learns, and their knowledge is going to be increased. And in the last days, people are going to be trying to find out answers to it all, what's really going on. But listen, those who are in Jesus Christ are described as being wise. And they're going to shine like the stars of heaven for all of eternity. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Contrary to how it may seem, the world is not barreling down the tracks on a crazy train. But the engineer has his hand on the throttle, his eye is on the station, and he's bringing the train of history down the track of time, and he's going to bring it safely into the station of the kingdom of his own son. My question for you is this, is your name written in the book? If not, then why not today? Why not seize the opportunity? to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, thank you for the truth of your prophetic word. And God, as it becomes so obvious to us that we are one day closer to the time of the end than we were yesterday, God, may we be ready as a people. Lord, I believe that we've been saved from the wrath which is to come, those who are in Jesus Christ. Rapture is in store for your church. 
But Lord, we've got a mission mandate and a gospel to preach. And that gospel is good news, but it's only good news to the one who understands the bad news. And the bad news is that sin is the human problem. And sin puts us on a collision course with the judgment of God. And we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. But Christ suffered and died on the cross so that we can be saved from the wrath of God. And saved from an eternal judgment. Because judgment was poured out on Jesus in the sinner's place. Death plunged its stinger into the body of our Lord Jesus on the tree. And he emerged on the third day from the tomb, the conquering king in victory and in power. And now, as those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no fear of death and dying, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Lord, save men and women today by your grace and mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.